It has been a little while since I've been here. Um, about four, five years ago, four or five years ago, I, I was in Arizona and I did a camp meeting for some folks down there. And um, I did Arizona, Arizona camp meeting for um, sort of what, what they call their uh, alternate service. Um, you know, you have sort of a traditional service and then you have the other ones, which people have a hard time naming. And I was in the other one. And um, they asked me to, they asked me back then about four or five years ago if I would come and do that again. And four or five years ago, I didn't have two jobs and I didn't have to go to camp meeting at Redwood. So I said, sure. And um, so that's where I've been for the last couple of weeks, kind of thinking about it as it was coming up. I was thinking, oh, man, this is a lot of time this summer. Um, but uh, I did have a great time. I tried to share with them three things that I share with you on a regular basis. Um, number one. That God is trying to get us into heaven, not keep us out of heaven. Is that the truth? Amen. Amen. Uh, Number two, that when you're looking at Jesus, Jesus is the exact representation of God in human flesh. Is that right? Okay, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. And lastly, that God is for us. Okay? And if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? If God is on our side, if God is for us, there is no way that anyone else has dominion in our lives. And so this morning, I just wanted to, uh, to say I'm glad to be home. It felt good to come out and just shake hands and greet folks and, and be in familiar surroundings of the, the people I know and love. Um, I met some really great folks there. Um, Pastor Greg has old friends there um, that actually babysat his son, who is now a doctoral student at Fuller. So... You can figure out how, quite, quite how long that was ago, but uh, they have fond memories of Nellie and Greg, and uh, send them, send your, their, they send their greetings to you and to all of you as church family. Uh, Pastor Greg shared with you that we are starting a summer series on uh, some of the major prophecies in Scripture. And uh, today we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 7, but I want you to, uh, I want to put a different eye in your, in your mind's eye as we start. I want you to recognize that this is a message in a context to a people and a person. Did you catch that? I know that's extremely obvious. This is a message in a context to a people and a person. Okay? Daniel's a real guy. Israel is a real, Israel's real people. Israel are real people. And they are in Babylon in a particular context, in a particular time frame. And this message is sent from God to and for them, as well as to and for us. Okay? Can you start there with me as we talk about this? It's very important that you understand this because we're going to be looking at Daniel's responses. And as he starts picking up some of these things, you see Daniel in these places. He'll be, he'll be looking at something and the Bible will say, I, he was troubled and so I did this. And I was troubled and so I did that. He's troubled because of the context in which he lives and the context in which the story is being told. So a little content and context here. Um, first, I want to I go through the things we've missed briefly. Um, in chapter 3, we have the faithful three. Do you know their names? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three men who stayed faithful to God in face of the fiery furnace. Remember the king set up a big statue and he said, everybody will bow down when they hear the music. And the music, music goes and everybody bows down except for these three guys who are standing up. And remember that in those days when you bowed down, your head hit the floor. Your head went all the way to the ground. And so when he's, when those guys are standing up, they're really sticking out. 
Okay? And so when Nebuchadnezzar, who apparently did not have his eyes closed during prayer, looked out and saw these three guys, he had them brought to the front. And he said, I'm going to give you guys another chance. And they said, no, we don't need another chance. Our God can save us from the fiery furnace. And even if he doesn't, we're not bound down to your image. Sorry, king. Which made him even more mad. So they, they threw him in. And as you know, as I'm sure most of you know, the story, the story goes that they walked through the fiery furnace and, the, and a fourth one joined them. And the fourth one, according to Nebuchadnezzar, looked like the son of man. And when they came out of the fiery furnace, when, after walking around in there for a while and not being, not being turned into ashes... As they came out of the fiery furnace, the only thing that was harmed on them was that the, the things that bound them, the cords that bound them were burned off. And the Bible says their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. That chapter, chapter 3 is telling you that no matter how hot it gets, stay faithful to God and He will stay faithful to you. And I love their testimony. It's like the testimony of Job. Job says, even though He slay me, I will trust Him. Here they said, even if He doesn't save us, we're going to trust Him. Even if we face the fires and they, and they destroy us, we are going to trust God. And Daniel's stories tell you how to behave in Daniel's apocalyptic uh, prediction. The stories of Daniel tell the believer how to survive, how to behave in facing those apocalyptic end time predictions. So that's chapter three. Chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar's pride and insanity. I put that little slash in there because they're kind of the same thing. Nebuchadnezzar suddenly gets proud and he goes crazy and he starts eating grass for seven years. And as he eats grass out there out there for seven years, his rescuer, his uh, caretaker is Daniel. And it's only because of Daniel's protection that he's not tossed off the throne. And we find at the end of that chapter, Nebuchadnezzar converts, humbles himself himself before God and becomes a follower of God. Now, if you're the Israelites, I want you to stop there and think about what that meant to you. If you've been hauled off into Babylonian captivity and all of a sudden the king converts to Judaism, what would you think? Would you think maybe you were going to be able to go home now? A king on your side, maybe maybe he'd be the one who sent you home? That was, I think, their hope as well. Chapter 5, Cyrus comes along and Cyrus is the new Moses. Nebuchadnezzar is dethroned and a new king comes and a man that Isaiah predicted named Cyrus comes in and conquers Babylon. And he becomes the hope for Israel. As the new Moses, he becomes the hope for a rescue from exile for them. And then Daniel chapter 6, as these new rulers take over, Daniel is still in service of the king. And some people trick the king into having Daniel thrown into a lion's den. Remember that story? He gets thrown in the lion's den. He spends the night with the lions. And when the king comes out, anxiously looking for him, Daniel, are you still alive? Has your God protected you? Daniel says, my God has taken care of me. He sent his angel to shut the mouths of the lions. Daniel Daniel was rescued, and those who accused Daniel were thrown in there to become lion lunch. So that's where we've that's what we've skipped. Those are the passages, the parts of the story we've skipped. We've gone on to the prophetic chapters. I want to encourage you to take a look at Daniel as a whole during this time when we're reading it. We're going to be doing some things in Daniel and in Revelation, but read Daniel as a whole. It's really a, it's a short book. It's a good thing for you just to read it in one sitting. Just read all the way through it and think about the fact that it's sent to people who are captured in Babylon in exile. Okay. Because that's the real content, context of this story. And these stories have a greater impact if you realize that there are people who are captives in exile that are hearing all these stories. Okay? So we're going to move on into chapter 2 and we're going to go kind of quickly through it. I had 48 slides for today. I don't think I'm going to get through all 48. So um, we'll see how fast I can go. I just want to make sure I get to a certain point. Okay? I want to make sure I get to one major point in this story. But here's Daniel chapter 7. 
Fifty years have passed since Daniel explained the king's dream in chapter 2. The prophecies of the second half were given directly to Daniel to reveal more information about the scope and history discussed in chapter 2. In this chapter are four highly symbolic beasts. They represent the kingdoms described in chapter (coughs) 2. A little horn is introduced. This antagonist, (coughs) he's antagonistic toward the people of God. And in the end, the little horn will find himself judged and executed. That's all of Daniel chapter 7. You got it? <laughs> in general, things, a piece I wanted you to catch is they've been 50 years in captivity now, and Nebuchadnezzar's dead. The major pieces of the context you need to get here is they have been in captivity for 50 years, and Nebuchadnezzar is dead. A new king is now on the throne. And that sadness that that brought on to Israel must have been deep. And their reality, their feeling that they are stuck here must be overwhelming. That's the reaction of the moment. That's where they are. After 50 years, children have been born in Babylon and are now adults. Older people who were taken off to Babylon have now passed away. Daniel himself is probably in his mid to late 60s, maybe even 70 by this point. He is one of the elder statesmen of the whole community of Israel after 50 years. Okay. So they've been there long enough for people to forget what Jerusalem looks like. They've been there long enough for a generation to grow up without even having an understanding of what Jerusalem looked like. Okay? They have been there long enough that their kids think they're Babylonians. And we know that when, when they go home, a lot of folks just stay. They like it there. It's just fine. They stay. Okay? In verse 1, the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and a vision in his head while on his bed. You love that description? He had a dream and a vision in his head. Okay. How specific do we need to get? When he wrote down the dream telling the main facts, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of the heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the others. They came out of what? The great sea. <clears throat> First time, first the time frame, Nebuchadnezzar has died, leaving the kingdom now in the hands of Belshazzar. The year here is 553 B.C., or approximately 553. Um, the sea is prophetic description of a populated place. There in, is Revelation chapter 17, verse 15. Then he, the angel, said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. I told you I was going to go fast. Um, the wind, is stirring up a popula- the wind stirring up a population is described by God in several places. In each case, it is important to note that God is taking credit for the rise and fall of these nations. And there's a couple of, of chapters uh, and verses there to, to represent that. These four beasts that he sees are going to parallel the image in chapter 2 that Pastor Greg shared with you last week. They're going to par- parallel that same time frame in prophecy. It's going to run down as that same time frame peels out. Now, I want you to stop. Think for a sec. Okay, stop looking at the screen. Look at me for a second. Okay. You're familiar with the story. You're familiar with the timeline. What does all this feel like to Daniel? There's a new king. He's not Daniel's friend. He's the Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. There's a new king. There's a new, there's a, a new vision being given to Daniel at this moment when things start to look really dark for Israel. What does it mean for Daniel to be given this vision and be given this new information? 
The first was like a lion. It had eagle's wings, and I watched till the wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given it. That's actually a picture of one of the lions that is uh, in relief on the gates of Babylon that were reconstructed in Berlin, in, uh, in the Berlin Museum. Um, a lion with eagle's wings. Note the wings were plucked off, and it's given a man's heart. Daniel 4 reveals a change in Nebuchadnezzar when he surrendered to God's authority. Okay? I feel like I'm going to be reading to you a lot. Verse 5. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And, and they, said to, they said thus to it, Arise and devour much flesh. So the angels are saying to this, to this bear, Go eat lots of stuff. Go eat everybody. Go eat everything. Not what I would want to hear from a bear, about a bear. The bears raised up on one side of this lopsided bears, uh, a coalition of the Medes and the Persian. First the Medes were the dominant power. Then the Persians became the dominant power. These three ribs were the three major kingdoms that were, co- were conquered to form the empire. Lydia in 546, Babylon in 539, and Egypt in 525. I'm going fast. If, you're, if some of this is escaping you, I'll be happy to share the slides with you. I'll be happy to talk to you more about it later, okay? I just recognize that uh, we have some time constraints here, Okay? Verse 6, after this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. So Daniel's starting to, starting to see this. There's a pattern going on, right? We've got beasts and they've got wings and they've got stuff going on and they're eating stuff. And Daniel's starting to see this. Now, he doesn't get an explanation right away. This dream is probably a little bit bizarre when he first has it. Right. It's probably a fairly disturbed night's sleep as he's laying there and weird animals are popping up out of the ocean or popping up out of the sea. The leopard with the four wings and four heads. The wings represent the great speed at which Alexander the Great, who began to reign at age 20 and ruled the world in 12 years, ruled the then known world in 12 years. Alexander the Great took over from his father as a localized Greek king and within a dozen years had marched across to the east, all the way to the Indus Valley in India, had, brought, had come back foolishly along the deserts of Arabia and taken over that entire region from Greece all the way out to India and back to Egypt. He controlled all of it. Okay? He dies at 32 years old. Um, the four heads are the four, di- four divisions of Alexander's, Kemp- Alexander's empire after his death. And in Daniel chapter 8, there's a specific description of these things. As you can see that as a reference. Daniel then sees this weird-looking creature. Verse 7. After this I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. Now, wait a second. You have seen a lion with wings. You have seen a bear who's got ribs in its mouth and who's told to devour much flesh. And you have seen a leopard with four wings and four heads. And this one's weird to you? Think about it. This just has to be something he's never seen before. It has to be, he's describing an animal or a creature that he's never seen before. That's why I like this dinosaur image that's down in the corner. We see lots of different things put out there, but I I wanted to find something that was something you might recognize, but probably something Daniel might not ever have seen before. After this, I saw the night vision of, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. It had iron teeth. It was devouring and breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it. And it had, how many horns? Ten horns. 
So he sees this creature, and it's coming up out of the water too, and it's just wild looking, it's weird looking, and it's got ten horns on its head. This terrible beast has iron teeth, nails of bronze, and it devours and tramples. It's different and unique from the previous three beasts. That is the scope of the Roman Empire at its height. There's a little map. So if you think about this area out here to the west, I I know I put that pointer in my stuff. There it is. This is the edge of the Greek Empire out here. Okay? So when the Roman Empire comes along, not only does it take over all of this, but it takes over all of that as well. Okay? Seat of the Greek Empire is over here. Seat of the Roman Empire is over here. Seat of the Babylonian Empire there. Seat of the Medo-Persian Empire actually over here. Okay? This giant scope is the, is the, the uh, length and breadth of the Roman Empire. Stopped by the desert to the south, stopped by the mountains to the northwest, and stopped by the deserts to the east. Okay? Everything that seemed conquerable was under Rome's control. Rome was a massive empire. Now, I want you to catch this next picture. When Rome breaks down into the ten horns, or as, as Pastor Greg shared with you last time, the ten toes of the image, when it breaks down, this is what's left of the empire. You can see that everything to the, to the east, what was once all of that Grecian empire, all of this has escaped Rome now. It's no longer under Roman control. It would be considered Eastern Roman Empire. And this is what becomes of the Roman Empire as we know in Europe. And it is taken over by the barbarian hordes. I used to teach history classes. I used to teach a world history class. I love teaching that class because I would teach basically Daniel 7 in my history class. And... Um, I would tell my kids, I would start my history class with asking them, what was, what's your nationality? And I, my kids would raise their hands, I'm French, um, I'm Italian, um, I'm German, I'm Austrian, you know, I'm British, I'm whatever. I would say, yeah, you, with you and you as the exception, the rest of you are all a bunch of German barbarians. No, I'm not, I'm French, I'm not German. No, you're just a Germanic barbarian. You came off the same planes with the rest of the crazy Germans, Okay. And they would just, they would argue with me about that. No, no, I'm French and I'm Austrian back five generations, whatever generations. Great, that's good for you. But you're all a bunch of crazy Germanic barbarians. See, what happened when the Roman Empire began to, to, to struggle and began to weaken was the barbarian tribes that were coming off those plains up there to the northwest, northeast started moving in and taking over the territory. They started gathering up the territory and, and started moving the Roman authorities and powers out of power. Okay, And as the Roman Empire begins to collapse, it collapses into a bunch of little parts. Now, the people argue over these names and the exact placement of where everybody is on the map. I'm just telling you right now, this was a very fluid situation. People were constantly moving back across each other's borders, taking each other's territory. Laying that map up there is to tell you that at a moment in time, that's what it looked like. Two weeks later, it probably was different. A year later, it definitely was different. And ten years later, it was completely different. What we know is that these certain powers, these certain tribes became the strongest. I love the description of one of the, um, the Greek Orthodox priests who went to evangelize these guys. And by the way, Christianity evangelized these barbarians very effectively. By the time you get to the 6th or 7th century, most of them are Christian of one stripe or another. One of the, one of the early early uh, Greek Orthodox priests who goes to meet these folks meets with one of these Germanic tribes. And I'm not kidding you, this is his, his, this is his description. Okay? He says, These people like nothing more than to sit around the fire 
and have knife fights, drink beer naked. So, now start, start going down the list of things you would never want to do with your time. Sitting around with a bunch of Germanic barbarians having knife fights, not high on my list. While they're drunk, not high on my list. While everybody's without clothing, I don't want to be in this. I'm really hoping the priest was kind of standing back saying, Oh, you guys, have fun. Knock yourselves out. Okay? So these are really some, some extreme people coming off those planes. Extreme, extreme people. And you can see why the Romans called them barbarians. I wanted you to see that because these ten horns come up next. It is in parallel with those feet, those ten toes that come out that would never stick together. Here is a representative group, the Alemanni, the Anglo-Saxons, the Burgundians, the Franks, the Lombards, the Suevi, the Visigoths, the Vandals, the Heruli, and the Ostrogoths. Okay? Um, the reason I'm giving you this list as representative is, again, because this is a fluid situation. And there was once a time in our church history when people would argue. I mean, it got to the point. It got to the point in a major Adventist center that folks walking down the street would argue with each other across the street about which of these ten tribes were actually the real Tim tribes. Okay. Here's what I have to say to you about that. We're not that clear on it. Okay? Barbarians don't keep good records. They prefer knife fighting and drinking. Guys who are out fighting each other with knives naked at night drinking aren't usually writing down their territorial placement. Okay? So the records we have are a little bit sketchy and a little bit fluid. So if anybody wants to start an argument with it, just, just surrender to whatever they say. If they want to say, oh, no, it wasn't, the, it wasn't those guys, it was some other guys. Okay, fine, good, great, nice research, and just move on. Okay? We do know that all of these groups represent present-day groups within Europe. Okay? They are absorbed into certain, certain populations other than the ones that were actually destroyed before this. Verse 8, I was considering the horns. So what's he looking at? The horns on the head of the last beast. And there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them before, the three of the, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. You have to say pompous in a certain way. You know, pompous words just can't be said normally. They have to be pompous. Maybe with a British accent. Okay, they're pompous words. Okay, the point though is he's the, his eyes are caught on one specific little horn that's coming up amongst the ten. So he's looking at the ten horns because something weird's going on, and like grass, a little horn's pump growing up out of there. Okay, and this little guy has eyes and a mouth, and he's talking. Would that get your attention? Yeah, I think it would. If you were looking at a bull, and all of a sudden one of his horns started talking to you, what would you do? You would probably leave the area immediately. He's in a dream. He can't escape. So I'm going to give you two quick eight identifying marks of this little horn. We're going to go through them rather rapidly. Um, first, first textually, verse 20. The t- and, the, and the ten horns that were on his head and the other one which came up before it 
which, uh, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. The ten horns are the ten kings who shall arise from the kingdom, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the, the first ones, shall subdue three kings, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, shall intend to change times and laws, then the saints shall be given into his hand for time, times, and a half a time. Do we have a lot of description of this guy? So why would you have a lot of description of this guy? He's a significant character in the story. Why is he significant? Because he's attacking God verbally and he's attacking the saints physically. Now, if you're Daniel, why would you be paying attention to this guy? Who does Daniel believe the saints are? Himself and his fellow Jews. So why would this guy catch his attention? Because he sees this guy as being one who will be attacking his people and be attacking him. You understand that? Daniel does not have a context for Europe. He does not have a context for you and I. He just has a context for Israel. And in his context, he sees this little horn pop up and he's attacking the saints. From Daniel's perspective, he's attacking Israel. He sees this as a threat to Israel. It's why he's zooming in on it. The good news for us is it's helpful for us later. So it rises out of the fourth beast. So it rises out of the Roman Empire. It appears among the ten horns. So it appears after the Roman Empire is divided up in about uh, the sixth century. It was little when when it was first seen and it grows to be larger later. It pushes out three of the first ten. Here are the three of the first ten that get pushed out. The Vandals, the Heruli, and the Ostrogoths. It has the eyes of a man and the mouth speaking great things and spoke words against the Most High. So we're expecting this to speak and look like a man. Got it? Are we, are we together so far through, through letter E? Okay. <clears throat> it would wear out the saints of the Most High. It would seek to change times and laws and claim authority to change the laws concerning time. And it was given power over the saints for time, times, and a half a time. Time is definitely in question here. Let's see if we can get a little bit into this. <clears throat> Paul predicted the rise of this power in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Here's a little ex- excerpt from it, verses 3 to 6. The man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. So Daniel, or Paul predicts that there will be somebody who exalts himself above God. Daniel predicts that there's one who will speak pompous words toward God. Okay? You see how I'm seeing a parallel here? Okay. For what is, uh, or what is, or that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So the prediction from Paul is that somebody is going to rise up from, from among them that is going to declare himself to be God. Verses three and four, a man who opposes God and exalts himself, claiming that he is God. Verses six and seven, not yet revealed in Paul's time, but the, but the foeman is already at work. So what, what, who is, who are the, uh, who are the rulers in Paul's time? Who rules over the world? The Romans. And in that Roman birth, in that Roman outgrowth, the, the child, the children, the prodigy of Rome that will come forward, there in them lies this initial foment of what's going to happen in the future. Apostasy will come from within, according to Acts 20, 17, 29, and 30. 
Also among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things and draw away disciples after themselves. It was the case for many, many generations, and it's sincerely and particularly the case as Rome begins to crumble, as the barbarians rise, and as this new authority, this little horn power, arises among them. Excuse me. Little horn summary. We're looking for a unique entity which came into power after the division of of the Roman Empire in the 5th century. Among the nations of the Western Europe displaced three nations at its rise and ultimately ruled over those nations which makes claims and acts against God and persecutes the followers of God. I'm going to ask you a quick question. Raise your hand if this is new information to you. Okay? handful of you, this new information. Good. Okay? I believe that there is only one clear uh, depiction here. The medieval church state system fulfills all eight of these identifiers. I want you to notice what I have called this. The medieval church state system. You know why I'm calling it this? Because for us to say that it is specific to only this one guy, this one moment and this one time is wrong. It's a a system that lasts over a millennium long. The medieval church state system, the followers on the heels of Christendom that become that universal church. Those followers that are that become what we know as Catholicism in the Middle Ages, that's this group. Here you go. It rises out of Rome. Constantine used the Christian church to unify his rapidly segmenting empire. He uses the church to wrap, to bring his empire together. He does so simply by saying, hey, as I look out across the landscape, everybody's becoming a Christian. We don't know if he converted legitimately or if he converted for just political purposes. Okay. But he converts to Christianity. He declares the Bishop of Rome, and there were five bishops at the time. He could have picked any of them. He declares the Bishop of Rome to be the head of all of Christendom. Okay? And the other bishops to be his subordinates. When he does that, he unites Christianity under the Roman Empire, and the Romans begin to put a a cross on their banners as as they march out into war. Okay? Um, Constantine, in doing so, brings thousands of people into the Christian church. Some estimates may even be millions that come rushing into the Adventist church. Come rushing into the Christian church at the time. Adventist church doesn't exist yet. Okay? He succeeds in helping to unify his his organization and and the empire under the flag of Christianity. Number two. It must come up after the Ten Horns. Western Roman borders were flooded by migrating Germanic tribes, 376 to 476. Number three, it started small. None would have expected that a a, a simple bishop in Rome could reign over Europe, but he certainly does by the end. It plucks out three horns on its rise in 476. Emperor Zeno throws the Herioli out of Italy to to solidify the the, uh, placement of the bishop. Um, in 534, Emperor Justinian throws the Vandals out of North Africa because they are harassing the Roman bishop. <clears throat> In 538, the Ostrogoths also are being thrown out of uh, what would be northern Italy, southern Austria. In 538, by Justinian. These groups are significant in that they are Arians. They do not believe that Jesus is God. They believe Jesus is a created person. He has the eyes like man speaking pompous words. This is certainly fulfilled among the leaders in that, in that time frame. When they start claiming to be God, to speak for God, to have the authority of God. The medieval church, headed by the bishop, said it w- spoke these kinds of things as are here. For I can't even speak, I'm trying to go too fast. 
For he is of so great dignity and power that he forms one in the same tribunal with Christ, as it were God on earth. I'm going to go faster. Number six. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Look up the Spanish Inquisition, the massacre in St. Bartholomew's Day, the Waldenses, the Donatists, the Huguenots, the Albigenses. These are constant. There's a, whenever there's a, a resistance against the church power, there's a movement away. Now, here's what I want you to understand about this. Medieval church leadership is both political and religious, okay, in parallel. And they began to think of themselves like a political entity would. If a king has a group of people rebelling against his authority, what does a king do? He arrests them, right? And or kills them in that time. The church started thinking of itself in more of a, as more of a political power. And so when people were going against the church's authority, religiously, what would they do? They would simply arrest them and or kill them. It was the way things were done. So we, we, we sometimes forget there's a context in these greater historical events as well. Okay? Now, I'm not volunteering to go and be martyred. Okay? I don't think this is a great way to handle your problems, but that's the way most of them were being handled. Okay? Keep going. Number seven. He will think to change times and laws. Um, God's law will never change so long as there is a heaven and earth and as long as God exists. But yet, this bishop claimed that he had the ability to modify, explain, and interpret even divine law. Claimed the authority to change and, and interpret even the things that God had declared. Number eight, the saints shall be given to his hand for time, times, and half a time. I want to stop here. I want to stop here because we're going to talk about this one later specifically. But there's, a, there's 1,260 years beginning at the rise of this little power and, and going to 1798 when it comes to an end, when it dominates the world, the, the European world. It dominates the church. This one prophecy is mentioned eight times in the Bible. Why so many Times. Why is it repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated? Simply this. The, the organization that claims to represent God is persecuting the people who are trying to follow God. Okay? Both within the organization and outside the organization. The organization that claims to represent God for over a millennium is persecuting the followers of God. So God repeats this prophecy over and over and over and over and over and over and trying to help us understand this bad thing is coming. And the group that claims to represent me will actually persecute my people. Okay? Daniel is thrown by all of this. The chapter ends. The, the, the chapter's uh, most powerful moment comes when God starts talking about what will happen. The horn was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass. I'm sorry. I need to back up a verse. I was watching in the night vision and behold, one like the son of man came coming in the clouds of heaven. And he came with the as the ancient of days and they brought him near to him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is the one that will not be destroyed. 
You see, Daniel is watching this story and he's seeing all this stuff and he's seeing the saints being persecuted and he's going, oh my goodness, again? Again? Look, we were in Egypt for 400 years. We're in Babylon now. The northern ten tribes have been hauled off into Assyrian oblivion. We're the only ones left and we're going to go through this again? And in the midst of this story where everything looks like it's the darkest, the Lord says to him, no! The Son of Man will come in the clouds of glory and He will be given a kingdom that will reign forever and His dominion will be forever and forever. Amen. And the story goes on to say, and judgment was set up and these authorities, these powers were brought before God. And judgment was given on behalf of the saints. You see, the story of Daniel chapter 7 at its core is not just a story of beasts and images and stuff coming up out of the ocean. The story of Daniel 7 is a story of hope to a man who felt hopeless. It's a moment of hope to a people who felt hopeless. Breaking into their 50 years of struggle in Babylon is the voice of God saying, this will not last forever. It will get ugly. It will get bad. But I will win. Judgment will be found on behalf of the saints. God will be victorious. The ultimate message here is no matter how bad it gets, No matter how far away from the plan it looks like you've strayed, God is still on his throne. God is still going to win. God, in the end, rules this universe. There's so much more to be told. and There's so much more to be read. And there's so many other things about this prophecy. Two things you should know. God knows the end from the beginning. And he wins. Let's pray. Father, it's been such a a fast-paced run through this chapter. I pray that enough of it is sticking in our hearts and minds to remember that you are still God. To recognize that you have given us the opportunity here to trust you and to follow you. That in your word is enough information for us to hang that trust on the valid facts that that have rolled out of this story thus far. We've seen the Babylonians We've seen the Medes and the Persians. We've seen the Greeks. We've seen the Romans. We've seen Europe. We've seen this power that reigned till almost 1800. And now we wait. We wait for your kingdom, for your dominion, your power to raise and reign forever. In Jesus' name.